Hi, this is Mish Hancock, and you are listening to Mishmash, a place where I get to talk to the weird, wacky, wonderful people of this world, people I adore and want to know more about. Today, my guest is Ness Sandoval. He's an associate professor of sociology at St. Louis University. His primary research focuses on the intersection of demographic techniques and computational spatial science to study spatial inequality in American cities. Welcome, Ness. Thank you for inviting me. How are you doing today? I'm doing good. <clears throat> so, what did I just say? <laughs> <laughs> so, this is an exciting area of research um, that's emerged in the past 15 to 20 years because of the change in technology. Okay. And um, so, the ideas that we're trying to uh, incorporate in our research are not necessarily new ideas. Many of the statistics that we try to apply to um, our studies have been around for many decades. But because um, they're very complicated, um, it was very difficult to do it by hand. Yeah, yeah. And so what happened right around uh, 1996, 97 was a, a change with the Windows environment going from DOS to Windows and people um, creating software programs that we're trying to incorporate the statistics into maps. Okay. And so um, we still had problems with computers, though, because computers were still slow. Um, the memory was very small. And so you, we still had limitations. Right. But as computers got better and they got cheaper, they were, they were becoming more accessible to professors and, and other individuals. And people started to see what we could do and um, with each generation of computers, we got better and faster computers and more memory. And then we got smarter people to create the software programs. And so this is where the computational spatial science came into it because the first part of this is where we can make nice maps. This, is, right. this was really something that was, that was different. And, and I, I have to say, I, I, I was stalking you a little bit, you know, so I could understand yeah. <laughs> everything. And, but your Twitter feed was so cool because it's maps, 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 yeah. just maps of all kinds of, of, you know, different with different information. It was really interesting to me. Yeah. So we, so we make a distinction between um, why maps are important, um, but the spatial, so there's, there's two components here when you, when you kind of think about um, the work that we do. One is making a map for people to kind of understand what's happening in your neighborhood or what's happening in the city or in the metropolitan region. And that's important. But the second part where, where we're going with, um, with our work today and in the future is within that map is information. And for us, we want to understand how important that information is in helping us understand social or economic environmental or ecological phenomenon there. And so we can start to create maps where we're looking at multiple variables at the same time. Okay. So oftentimes these maps are very difficult. So what we do is we do the analysis in the background and then we're able to make a map of this very detailed um, statistical model that's there. And this is what's new. This is, this is um, really in the past 10 years we've been able to advance this field in terms of looking at multiple variables within the map, but also trying to understand um, how we think about these relationships 
And so part of what I argue um, in the work that I do is that we all understand space, whether right. we, we kind of think about it. We all kind of, we can look at a Google map and be like, okay, this is where I live and this is where I work. This is the road I'm taking. So we kind of understand this space, right? But when we look at maps, when we look at the maps as just a map, there are boundaries that are predefined. And right. so these boundaries typically are provided by the U.S. Census or the metropolitan governments. And they're boundaries of neighborhoods, they're boundaries of political wards, of crime mapping districts that are important, zip codes, counties, your own boundary of your city. So we kind of understand, we, we're always trying to understand our own space in relationship to these boundaries. And so what we've been trying to think about is um, those boundaries are important. Right. But are they really masking the spatial patterns that exist within the boundaries? So is this where the spatial inequality comes in? Yeah, it's so an interesting term. Yeah. You know, so what does that mean, mean spatial inequality? So we, so as a sociologist, as a demographer, um, we study society. And one of the paradigms of society is class. Mm-hmm. Uh, so we say there's a, there's a hierarchy in society. And then you have your, you have your top your middle and your, your working class and we look at occupation and we look at education and we look at prestige and, and so forth. So we just, we know from all the work we've been doing is this is very important. There's this hierarchy. But we started to ask the question, is this, how is this hierarchy distributed throughout space? Is it randomly distributed throughout space or do we see a hierarchy uh, a spatial, what we would call a spatial hierarchy, and within that spatial hierarchy, um, we see what we call opportunity structures cluster around this hierarchy. So I'm going to stop you. Opportunity structures. What does that mean? So opportunity structures is your access to jobs, uh-huh. your access to quality education, your access to transportation. So within, if you live in a metropolitan region. You have all these opportunities. Right. Based on where you live, what type of access do you have? Because not everybody has the same access to the same... That makes complete <clears throat> sense. And so we, I started to work on this when I was um, a PhD student at UC Berkeley because we really started to see that people had different access to the greater metropolitan opportunity structure if you had a private... We call it private mobility. So if you had your own car... right. Versus if you were reliant on public transportation. Yes. You could only access certain types of jobs and certain types of entertainment and certain types of healthcare if you were reliant on the bus or on, on public transportation. Well, and even, the, even you think of like grocery stores. You know, there are people that they they can get to the little corner Seven Eleven type place and that is not going to be the best food, sure. and and also often higher price. You, you if you're going to get milk at the little corner store, it's going to cost a heck of a lot more than what you can get at a grocery store. So this is not new. People have been talking about this right. for for many decades. Sociologists and demographers have been talking about this, um, but how we kind of understand our opportunity structures is kind of based on what people believe they have access to. Now we map, we map these opportunity structures using these predefined boundaries. Mm -hmm. And so we kind of look at clusters of places that have great opportunity 
in clusters where the opportunity is limited. And then we start to get into this um, debate about how did that happen? And the, for a region like St. Louis, which is uh, car dependent, yes, if you have no car, then you and you live in an area that has poor transportation, you're not going to have access to the same opportunity structure that somebody who lives in another neighborhood that has access to public transportation but does not have a car, they're just going to have a different opportunity structure. Gotcha. And so we, we look at this and say, well, that, that's a form of inequality. Now, the question is the magnitude of the inequality and what does the quality actually mean for a person who's very young versus somebody who's uh, over 65. So we look at the live course and say, well, maybe 65, you're, the things that you're looking for are healthcare, access to a doctor, access to good food. Uh, if you're young, you're looking for access to quality education, access to parks. Um, and so so we, we have to take into account the different demographic characteristics. And so that's the intersection between the demography and space gotcha. is that we all go through different demographic transitions as we age. And so right. things that are important for me now were different when I w- was 18. Exactly. I, was, I, had a different, I was looking for different things in my metropolitan region. So this is interesting. We're going we're gonna to take a quick break because I've got all kinds of questions sure. coming up right now. <laughs> we will be right back with Ness. you're listening to Mishmash. We are back with Ness Sandoval and we are talking about spatial inequality and so many interesting things. So my question for you, do people like, would, would a government hire you as an example? Like we need to put in a new transportation system for our area. And like, would they work with you to help them figure out what areas are in the greatest need? Well, they have their own, most government agencies have their own division okay. where, they, where they do this. Um, so, yeah, so we oftentimes we will um, exchange ideas. We make presentations on work that we're doing. Um, so it really depends on which part of the government. So for in terms of transportation, they're very well funded. Okay. So they have, have hired their own in-house um Gotcha. Individuals to to create these uh, maps and to, to do the type of data analysis that they want. Other government agencies do reach out to us because they just don't have the capacity. And so part of the mission that we have at SLU through our lab is that we want to empower people. And we want to help them understand how they can incorporate maps and, spati- and a spatial analysis into a better understanding of how they better can serve their clients how they can think about their neighborhood and envision a future mm-hmm. of uh, what the neighborhood could be based on the different types of inequalities that, that may be present in their neighborhood. Wow. So what's is it? what project are you working on right now? Is there a project you're working on right now that's really exciting? So we have a couple different projects um, that we're working on. We're working on a project where we're mapping out... Um, services that have been provided by a nonprofit a nonprofit group of lawyers 
and they're trying to get a, get a sense of the types of cases that they have based on the location. And Interesting. so in this place, is it mostly immigration cases or in place A, is it mostly uh, divorce or is it place C, is it housing and foreclosure? So they want to get a sense of um, are there patterns that they're starting to see within the types of clients that they work with and um, to get a sense of how they need to reallocate their resources okay, to kind of meet the demand that they're seeing internally there. So we're, we're in the process of um, creating some maps for them to get a sense of um, the, the differences in the clientele that they have based on the data that they, they were able to share with That's us. That's cool. And, and so we're able and, and to... And so this is, is, this, is this a group of lawyers or is it a private law firm or... So it's a, non, it's a non-profit organization. Okay, gotcha, yeah. gotcha. Okay. And so... Um, so that's that's one project, and then we do a lot of work with Mosaic. Oh and yeah, we so, love yeah, them. So we <laughs> um, we're constantly providing uh, at least twice a year, or sometimes three to four times a year, updates on what's happening with the immigrant population. Um, so they get this profile, but we also make a map because we have a very large metropolitan region, and so the map kind of. So they have this global number that says this is how many immigrants are coming in and right. this is our increase. And then we're able to show this map by county and we can do it within the county of which counties are gaining uh, population in terms of immigrants and which counties are losing. Um, and then we can do that within the county. So we, we're doing some work on immigrant enclaves. And so one of the interesting things is, um, so St. Louis doesn't have a very large immigrant population to begin with. Right. But we do have immigrant enclaves. Yes, we, we do. And so this is this has been a shock, I think, for a lot of people because they always think, wow, St. Louis, we have a, we don't have an immigrant population, so we're not going to have these immigrant enclaves. And then I created this map that says, in fact, you have we have about thirteen of them um, based on um, cities, right, in the in the right. region that are, that would qualify as an immigrant enclave. And I think people are shocked because when they see this map, they're like, oh my gosh, Maryland Heights is an immigrant enclave. Oh. All of its city is an immigrant enclave. And so they see this on the map and they go, I know this area. I know what's happening in Mar- Maryland Heights. I know what's happening in all of its city. Do you think some of it is because, because I've thought of this before, like is some of it because it's it's so contained in one area? You know, how, I mean, you know how it is like you're, you're used to doing, you go here, this yeah. is where you shop, this is where you go. And so you don't see some So you, we get areas. these clusters, yeah. So the question yeah. for us is... Um, I'm not saying necessarily the cluster is good or bad. And the, the question is, how do these clusters happen? Right. Who's living in the clusters? And so we would see that this may be a cluster where it's got a very large Bosnian population. And so we would expect, based on immigrant enclaves, that's, that's a natural social formation of, of um, social capital working together. And Maryland Heights and Creep Corps, uh, all of its city in that area, it's about far more diverse, but you have to get a very large Indian, mm-hmm. uh, Chinese uh, population. Then you get areas where you get a very large Mexican population, right? So for us, it kind of t- not all immigrant enclaves are the same. Some are very diverse. Some are very homogeneous. You have Fairmont uh, City here, which is a Mexican immigrant enclave. Um, so it's not very diverse. And so that's right. very different than Maryland Heights, which one is very diverse. And so we... So we have these maps, but then we drill in within the maps and saying, what's what's important 
to try to understand why this map is coming out and, right. and showing that there's a cluster there. Or is it sometimes just like a person, like somebody moved there and then somebody else moved there and so you know what yeah, I mean? Yeah. Like is it is it just because somebody moved there and thought, oh, this is good, this is comfy, come on over, you know? Yeah. And so uh so the I would say from a from a from my perspective, uh, as more immigrants move into the state, into the region, we're going to start to see more areas become immigrant enclaves. Um, I think the most of them are going to be in the suburbs. Uh, but then we can get down to the neighborhood level and saying, okay, I don't want to look at cities. Right. But how many neighborhoods are immigrant enclave neighborhoods? And so here we get very detailed um, analysis of maps. And so I know this block or these sets of blocks if we use census tracts, would be classified as an immigrant neighborhood okay. versus an immigrant uh, enclave city. And so that then would we get, be so, so cool. To, I mean, because that'd be so cool to know. Then you know where the authentic restaurants are. Yeah, then you kind of get a sense of... Well, then there's, there's <laughs> you know a, what I mean, a, though? I mean, I would love to have like an enclave field trip. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So we have, I have a student who uh, was working on this, and so we started to explore this and trying to get a sense of... Um, do the people who own the restaurants live in the neighborhood, or are they traveling? And and so there's there's lots of work to be done now. And this, but this could not be done 15 years ago because the data was the data was simply not there. Um, the U.S. government really changed the census, and they okay. went to the American Community Survey, and because of that, uh, they started to ask different types of questions. And so somebody who's interested in immigrant research the types of questions we can ask now related to space is very different compared to the 2010 census. And so um, we can we can look at uh, age of immigrants and citizenship status, mm -hmm. the language ability of immigrants and citizenship status by, by place. And so we have the ability to make very unique maps now oh, cool. that we were not able to do uh, when the 2000 census was, or the 1990 census. There you're kind of limited in terms of the types of maps you can do. So, so there's been a revolution, not only in terms of technology, but in terms of data transparency and uh, asking more more types of questions that are there. And so that's just the richer. government. Yeah. You can get a lot more information now. Is, is yeah. that it? And one of the things we discovered is that organizations are collecting their own data. We're working oh. with them to kind of help them understand. You realize that you have data that you can put on a map. Cool. They may not know how to do it, but we come in and we provide, um, we work as partners and we help them take their data and put it on a map. And, and this initially to show them this is, this is your clients. I love and that and then plus it's easier, right? If you have that visual yeah. of the map. And they're, and they're surprised. They're like, I had no idea that people were traveling 40 miles to come to visit us. I mean, we were able to develop oh, what's called a commute wow. shed to see how far people were coming just to get services from that agency. And then that can help them to understand if they should have like a little satellite yeah, exactly. somewhere. Yeah. Oh, that or is could, interesting. Or the reverse, it can help them kind of understand well, like with one of the clients, they're like, we are, we are really a neighborhood-based organization and we really need to go back to our grassroots uh-huh and focus on the clients that live in our neighborhood and f and so it, it can go both ways uh in terms of really trying to be true to the mission of the organization so the maps yeah. kind of help them understand uh where they're at are they are they true to their mission and then what's happening 
So this is kind of exciting. So interesting. All right. We will be back with Ness in just a moment. back with Ness Sandoval. We're talking about spatial inequality in American cities. And I've got some questions for you. Okay, so as just the regular old person out here, can I myself, can I apply this to my own neighborhood? Like, are there tools for me? Absolutely. All right, tell me how. So we, uh, there there are a couple different options. So one option is um, every year we offer a, a spatial inequality workshop on campus that's free to the public. And so we typically send out an email and we invite people to come to campus and to come and learn how to make maps of their neighborhoods to get data that they're interested in. And so we do that for free. Cool. And Where so do people sign up? So they have to, they'll have to send me an email and say that okay. they've heard about this and that they would like to participate in the workshop. Uh, we typically do the work, we do them a couple times. Uh, we do at least once a year, and then sometimes we do, um, when there's a high demand, if there's a special topic coming on, we'll, we'll do a special topic type workshop, like a hackathon. Oh, cool. And say, we're going to devote four hours to this topic because it's been important in the news. Um, but if they send me an email, I put them on a list, and then I'll send that uh, email out that says, okay, here's the date. It's typically from uh, 9 to 12 on a Friday, typically in April. Okay. Sometimes we have one in May and, and then we do a, a summer workshop um, as well. Um, so that that's one way. <clears throat> and then you teach people how to do it. Absolutely. Like on, on their own. That's so what we're awesome. able to do is, um, because we're a university, we have access to uh, a couple different software programs that would cost money. Right, got you. And so the nice thing about the software programs is that uh, they're, they're cloud-based. And so the the ability to make maps is pretty much like driving a mouse on Google Maps, right? Okay. You just like, this is what I want. I want a couple clicks here, and then, then I want to zoom in, and there's your neighborhood. So you may say, I want a map. I want to see what the racial composition of my neighborhood is. Like you can get down to your to your block. Right. And we can make that map probably in 30 seconds now. Really? Yeah. Oh, how interesting. And then you can, I, I teach people how to save the maps and then you can share the maps on Facebook and on Twitter and, and you can do things. What, what people really find interesting with the workshops though is they, and this is where I think when we started our conversation, right? the data behind the maps is probably even more important than the map itself. Right. So they come in like, oh, I love this map. Can I have the data? And because we're offering a, this workshop, they can download the data uh, in seconds, like you know, like thirty seconds. Now you can do this for free, um, but it's a it's a little bit more work if you do it on your own through the U.S. Census, okay. American Fact Finder. Um, and so they have a they have an interactive um, website as well, and oh, then right. um, it's called GeoFred. It's the Federal Reserve here at St. Louis. They also have an interactive uh, mapping software that allows you to look at social and economic indicators. Very cool. But where we're going with this is the map is nice. Right. 
but we actually want to do mean? the spatial statistics of identifying within that map what should I be looking at. Right. Yeah. Exactly. And so that's that's what we do. That's cool. Yeah. That's a cool offering. That class. Yeah. I love that. Okay. Um, the most surprising or unexpected fact you ever learned from this work? Just something you were like, whoa, did not even think that was going to occur or happen or be. The most surprising thing that I have learned from this is, um, well, there's, there's just so many. I think um, we do a lot of work on um, our ability to take satellite images and convert these into data. And so what we are able to do now is um, what, would, what, what appears to be a Google image, we can take that image and we can now create maps of quality of trees, tree coverage, different types of vegetation, and very detailed maps. We're breaking it maps down to um, meter by meter. Really? And so we, uh, so part of this, part of what we were doing is... Um, looking at ecological inequality, right? We want to see how healthy is the city in terms of trees, tree coverage, because this is important. Because this is a huge thing with all, like, neighbor, new neighborhoods going up all the yeah, time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So if you, have, if you have this forest preserve and then you tear all the trees down to build a housing development or to build a shopping center, what's the impact? What's the ecological impact? Right. So we're able to kind of really do this now and... And um, so for me, if you were to ask, we knew we could do this. This was, this was something we've been doing for a while. But the ease that we can do it now, it's, 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 you can, it's accessible to people. Right. Where 15 years ago, 20 years ago, to do this was really in the hands of experts. And now what we're, I think for me, the surprising fact is how easy we're able to help users absorb this technology. And you can do this, I mean, as long as there's a Google map, you can you well, can figure out the vegetation of that area and what well, have you. I use Google map as an example. Okay. So behind that Google maps is the satellite, the satellite image. image. So we have to go okay. to the actual satellite image gotcha. itself. And so they use, these are available. And the satellite, that will, that gets all that data? Yep. Oh, and so you can go back in time. Stuff. So we, wow. I'm working with a PhD student right now. And we're analyzing 72 metropolitan regions, and we're analyzing the quality of vegetation from 1990 through 2010, and looking at the role that time plays. But now we're looking at the role of economic inequality in, in these neighborhoods, because we, we have it by 1,000 uh, meter by 1,000 meter grids. Got yeah. That's amazing. And so we, we were able to get all of our data into these grids. And, and it's a map that most people are not familiar with because when they see a map, it's, they see a map of census tracts or a map of their own neighborhood right. or counties. And like, oh, that's a grid. That's a thousand meter by thousand meter grid. And like, yeah, that's, that's kind of, and you can go down. When we work with crime, we do, we do work with crime. Some people want it by 50 meters by 50 meters. And I think this has been shocking to see the crime maps yeah, that are at that level of detail versus a crime map of neighborhood boundaries because you're like, oh my gosh, that neighborhood boundary map is showing all these neighborhoods as high crime neighborhoods, but the way that you're showing it is, it's really these 
pockets. Yeah, it's like this one tiny little area that are, are the magnets of, of different types of crime, and it just has a different reorientation to how you understand inequality. Does does this apply to animal life as well? So you can do it for animal life. So so uh, so I know some biologists who one of my colleagues studies fish and looks at how fish swim in the Missouri in oh, the Mississippi cool. River and he's looking at the the depth of fish and so you can do this with biology. I know of other people that do uh, they put GPS trackers on animals to try to get a sense of the range of where they're going. Right. That's not my area of research but uh, so as long as we have with technology today, with my with our cell phones, um, with Twitter, we're doing some work on Twitter, uh, trying to keep a sense of when people tweet, where are they tweeting? Because we know exactly if they if they have the location service on, we know the X Y coordinate of where they tweeted. Right. So if I did a tweet here in the studio, it would say that Ness Sandoval tweeted, and then I have the content of my t- tweet. And so I can download this for free. And I say, well, I want to see what people were tweeting about during the eclipse. Yeah, right. And then I want to create a map of the themes that were emerging across the region. And let's say, well, maybe where you were living, they were tweeting about um, something, something, right? Yeah. Clouds. Maybe yeah. there were clouds there. Clouds or, and or what the shadows look like. Or, and so right. you can have a map and say, well, in this area, people were kind of disappointed because they were not able to see the total eclipse. Right. And in this area, they were able to see it. That is and fascinating. So this is, there are some really interesting maps coming out with Twitter. You can't, we can't really do this necessarily with Facebook because Facebook's data is private. So you have to get, right. an, you have to have an arrangement with Facebook for them to share this. But Twitter yeah. has decided that it's going to be open and you can download it and, and you can map it and, and then you can do some interesting social network network analysis and so how cool yeah. well, that, so that would explain why you're so active on Twitter yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay one more so one more question really it's do you have a favorite type of map like is there a map that you just like this map rocks out <laughs> so I have a map one that one map that I like to sh- to show is a map of um, what we, a research project called um, it's on, Lat- on Latino cities Latino majority cities. Where are you from? Where, so where I'm originally from, well, I was born in Denver, Colorado, but okay. I grew up in Nebraska in Scotts Bluff, which is on the western side near um, Wyoming. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. And so I grew up in a community that had a very large Mexican population. So, okay. so I've always tried to understand how this happened. Is my community unique? For, for Nebraska, uh, my community was, was unique to have that large of a Mexican population. Really? Yeah. All right. It's about 30%. Plus or minus a percent, so that's that's unique for Nebraska. Okay, um, but I have this map of the entire United States that I made that shows every um, place that the U.S. C- classifies as a place. So it could be like Creve Corps, all of its city, Maryland Heights. It's got an official designation by the U.S. Census that has a Latino majority population in it, and then I break that map. It says, well, there, it's at least 50% of the residents there are Latino majority. And then I have a, part of the map shows cities that have 75%. Okay. And so I, I remember, and I, I'll never forget this. So I, I shared this map on Facebook and, and Twitter and said, these are, all, these are all the places that are now officially Latino majority. And then somebody says, that map's wrong because you're saying something somewhere in St. Louis. You're saying St. Louis is Latino majority. I was like, no. 
there's a there's a suburb in St. Louis that's Latino. And they're like, which suburb? And I said, it's Fairmont. And like, oh yeah. And it, so for that, it hit them. But then they were surprised to find out that Missouri had other cities, places that that were Latino majority. Interesting. Iowa had places. Nebraska has places. And so we tend not to think about that because they get lost in these county maps. Right. And so at a county level, yeah, they don't exist. But because we're able to map this out, we see places in Mrs. in uh, Georgia. Um, like, whoa, what's going on in Georgia? And we see places in uh, Montana and Oregon and Washington that are Latino majority. And so for, for people, they're like, wow, this is really happening. Right. And so... So the the next extension of this is what's going on in these places. Yeah, what's, why why is there exactly is this driven by immigration? And for some cities like Fairmont, yes, it is. And other cities, it's not. It's driven by babies being born. Interesting. And so this is where I put my demography hat on and saying, okay, what's the demographic transition here? You got places that are very young, um, like Noel here in, in Missouri, and um, so the next fifteen twenty years, that's going to be very different because of change in the population. So that's that's one of my favorite maps because it's, it kind of starts a dialogue that people aren't used to having right. this dialogue. Um, but it's, I find I like that map. Well, I lo- well fascinating stuff, sir. Thank you Thank so you. much Thank you for, for sharing me. this with us. And you're one of our TEDx Gateway Arch speakers for October yes, 27th. So I know that you're just in the the very beginning of putting your talk together, but I we appreciate you doing this. I'm excited, I'm excited. to hear your talk. Great. Thank, Thank you, you very Ness. much. And you all have been listening to Mishmash. Please go to iTunes and subscribe. We will catch you next time. <laughs>